The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 61 of The Things We All Carry. Few words can strike fear like the word cancer. The adage is that it will touch everyone's life at some point. That's never been truer for me. As I sit here writing today, I have my own mother foremost in my mind. She's put up a valiant and brave fight over the last few years after being diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Her spirits never seemed to break over that time and that holds true today while she's home in hospice care. My mind also turns to a friend, really a brother, as he and his family turn their energy and focus to this battle as well. Unfortunately, as firefighters, we are much more susceptible to this insidious disease than the rest of the population. For many years, we've all heard this dismissal of it's part of the job or something to that effect. We face numerous carcinogens on a daily basis, from diesel exhaust to poor sleep to the byproducts of house fires. The last thing we need is another risk added to that list. Yet in a cruel twist of fate, we have just that, and it comes from the very gear meant to protect us. Our turnout gear is festering with and continually shedding what are commonly called forever chemicals, or classified as PFAS. They are known carcinogens with identified quote-unquote safe levels. Our gear greatly exceeds any so-called acceptable levels. Every time we don our gear, we put ourselves at greater risk for the fight of our lives. Diane Cotter is a patron saint. She met our industry head-on with dogged determination after her husband, a 28-year vet of the Worcester Fire Department, was diagnosed with cancer. Her journey was one of discovery both as a person and an activist. An unassuming wife and mom who at one point refused to have more than 99 Facebook friends became the face and voice of a fierce battle for what amounted to the soul of the fire service. She took up the mantle and the burden of advocacy at the time when the old guard had selfish reasons to quiet and discredit her. Much to our benefit, she never quit and didn't back down despite their efforts. Take a listen as Diane tells her story from the personal side of the battle. Listen as she speaks of the toll it took on her and how she came out the other side. Then find a way to thank and applaud her for everything she's accomplished for all of us in a fire service. It turns out that we as firefighters really do need heroes and Diane Cotter is just that, our superhero. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. I'd like to welcome to the show, Diane Cotter. It's been a long time getting this interview set up and we had, well, excuse me, we had it set up a couple back and forth, a couple of instances with my ADHD, which prevented me, they didn't prevent me, but it's a good excuse for, for, for screwing up. Uh, thank you for being patient and thank you for giving me your time this morning. How are you? Oh, I'm great, Brendan. Thank you so much for having me today. So we'll get into your story and, and why you're on the show and why I find the, the story fascinating and, and, and very vital for uh, the entire first responder community here. But let's hear a little bit about you first. Um, 
what was family life like? Where did you grow up? And, and, uh, you know, where did you, where did you, I don't know, where did you get your values and your morals and everything from? Sure. I, I love the question. It's a difficult topic for me, but I did grow up in Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts. I grew up in um, a section of the city of three Deckers. My, my mom was um, Irish, my father Italian. My mom stayed home to raise my brother and I, and um, we lived next to um, Norton Company, which was a great big factory in the city of Worcester. And the, the childhood was traumatic. Unfortunately, I wish I could say it was beautiful, but it was traumatic. Um, my mom was, um, unfortunately, suffered greatly with alcoholism. And led her to a couple of suicide attempts um, in shock therapy. And by the time I was 10 years old. So uh, my dad was an icon in the city. <laughs> he was very well known because he managed what was then called the Lowe's Polai Palace. And those are just gorgeous theaters. That were designed by, uh, I think it was Walter Land out of New Haven, Connecticut. So he, he had pretty much, I uh, mean, he was a gregarious, you know, character and loved beautiful women. And um, my mother dealt with that the only way she could. So childhood shaped me to be a very, very private person. And, um, yeah, and things changed, you know, after, um, even, even when I, I met Tom, he was very gregarious and I, I think people thought I was gregarious, but it was probably, uh, an act because of my father's being an icon in the city, you know, we were expected to behave a certain way. So, um, yeah. So I met Paul in high school. It's a beautiful story. <laughs> he was driving down what we, what we call, I guess, 190. He tells me it wasn't a different street, but I know it was 190. And I'm in the passenger seat with my girlfriend was driving, you know, a piano station wagon, her parents' piano station wagon. This is 1976, I think. And I look over and there's just this gorgeous man with um, beautiful long hair and um, this gorgeous smile. And he's driving his father's baby blue Cadillac <laughs> with a white roof. And I, I'm going to tell you, it's, I knew it sounds so corny, but in that second, I saw stars, I fell in love, and this all happened in a heartbeat. I said, that is the man I am going to marry. So, um, it was the 70s, remember? So he pulled up and smiled and emotion like, come on over here and follow me. So I said to my girlfriend, hey, do you know these guys? And she said, yeah, yeah, those are the Carters. And so we followed them into a parking lot. And, um, 
he's sitting in the front seat driving that baby blue Cadillac and he, he, he motions for me to come over and sit in the car with him. And he turns around and says to the guy sitting in the car with him, everybody out. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was the beginning of the, you know, the last Stanley. So what what year was that? That was 76. Okay. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And what about children? Do you guys have children? We do. Yeah. We have our daughter, Jimmy. She, uh, she and her husband live in uh, Massachusetts, social workers, and they have blessed us with two beautiful boys that we, that we adore. And we have a son who is also a Worcester firefighter, and we could not be prouder of him. He's also a United States Marine. So was was your husband a firefighter when you met him, or was he still in high school? Oh, no, he actually was not a firefighter when we met. He worked in a factory. Um, he took the exam, and I finally did get on in 19... 88, and um, he just fell in love with the job on day one. We fell in love with the job together. Oh, we just, we really had that idyllic, you know, firefighters, hang with firefighters, we party with firefighters, we vacation with firefighters, we, you know, go to weddings and baptisms and these the fire family becomes your family. We had a Paul Hill, the greatest group. Uh, you know, he had an extraordinary career. He finally got on the rescue. Uh, when he was about four years into the job, he absolutely loved it. And, you know, the antics that, that you know, were just taking place daily were legendary, but they are in every firehouse. You know, they used to, you know, has a, potato gun you <laughs> still enjoy shooting out the um the windows of some vacant buildings from the from the parking lot of the um i'm getting shot as the same yeah you're giving away secrets now i am uh, yeah they had us they had so much fun they had so much fun. You, you know we would we would go down we'd take the kids down and Watch the you know parade from the fire station, and it's just awesome. Everything about it was just best, absolute best. Yeah, and then of course, Paul was in injured on duty down three weeks before the December third, nineteen ninety nine warehouse fire. He was at a yeah, fire where a ceiling came down on him. He was not working the night at the warehouse fire because he's on the rescue. They called in and someone else to fill in for him. That person that filled in for him was not a rescue person. As it turns out, it was a swap of that evening in, in a firehouse in one of the parties that ended up replacing Paul on the rescue that night was Jerry Yusey. 
And the scenes probably knew that the warehouse fire lost six body fighters in 19. outpouring of love, emotion for the city of Worcester. I don't know. I, once I heard 60,000 came to the city. We had the president, the vice president, the congressman. My husband was amazed. Uh, one of the theaters that were very close with the Jackson theme. And out of was the warehouse fire, and the firefighter foundation was born. Yeah, and I was going to say, I, there are a couple of things to take away from, from that part. Um, the fact that he wasn't there for the fire, you know, did how did he deal with that? Oh, terribly. Absolutely terribly. Um, I can remember getting call as I was driving somewhere in, in Future Road, somewhere in Holden, Massachusetts. And he said, Diane, we've lost, we've lost six. And I said, oh, God, Paul. And my heart was racing. She was choking at tears. And he went to the firehouse and man the phones, which was not what he wanted to do, but they wouldn't let him on the job. And, uh, you know, the wives were calling. He, he was put in a terrible position, obviously, to know what he couldn't say. We all started coming to the, to the scene. We all remained at the scene for, for days and days. And Paul immersed in becoming a liaison and went on for months and months and nearly broke our marriage. He didn't know how to stop being a liaison and I finally gave him an ultimatum one day because he wanted to deliver mail to one of the, you know, the family that he was caring for. And I had said to him, if you go out that door, the kids and I won't be here when you come back. But yeah, pick up the phone. He calls Frank Rotha, my union president, and he said, Frank, I'm out. And that was it. And when he says he was out, he he means the that that kind of the, the liaison part and the, and the being so deep into it. That ended that moment. Right. That moment. Because obviously you have to know, you know, it's a very stressful job and you can get very caught up in it too, because being a liaison, you know, you, you're invited to a lot of events and, you, mm -hmm. have, you know, and, um, it was, it was very emotional for him. He, I'm sure, you know, he probably suffered with survivor's guilt and had to do what he could do to to somehow repay. Not that you can ever repay, but he put himself uh, in a position where he was gone from his family for over a year, and a, over a year, well over a year. And I remember they had a critical incident stress management team set up for the liaisons and the wives and the liaisons and I 
finally called, broke down and called, and they said, we've been waiting for you, Diane. We've heard from everybody but you. So they were just, they knew that they were going to have to step in at some point. Yes. Yes, because, you know, when tragedy happens and on, on the scale that it did, there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of help. You know, you have so many organizations that come in and, and there are uh, pretty much nonstop uh, events. And while as a, as a liaison wife, you understand that these happen. They do subside after time. And what wasn't subsiding was the errands that my husband and, and some others were still participating in. And, you know, it, it just became too much for me uh, as his wife to, to deal with any longer. And at that point in time, our marriage had been stretched very thin by these fibers that come with being a liaison. It, I, I don't want you to misunderstand because I was so very proud. The initial months, but months turned into many more months. It, uh, yeah, it, it definitely pulled up the fibers of our marriage to the degree that I had to stop it. So he responds to that and continues, um, he recovers and continues back onto the job. Yes, he does. And yeah. your marriage survives and, and thrives. It did. Yeah. The marriage, the marriage has always been, um, you know, the, the parts of our marriage have always been wonderful. We've always had a loving home, um, because I grew up in a in traumatic home. So I've never wanted that for my children and, you know, my. My, my husband is a wonderful husband. When I did go back to work full time, when my children were, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 and 11, I think I went back to work full time. Um, you know, I'd come home and there'd be a fire in the fireplace and my husband would be cooking dinner on the nights that he was home. And we just had a beautiful nightly ritual of, you know, <laughs> watching TV together and even just that children seeing us sitting very close together on the sofa, because I never saw that. Mm. I wanted my children to experience a, a, a loving home. And we did have that, not to say that we didn't fight, because boy, we did. You know, I'm Irish and Italian, so yeah, there's it's been, it's been a few. There's been a few. I don't hold back, I guess. It has to say, and I think anybody that knows me would say, oh, oh yeah, that's Diane. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's also the region. That's, that's New England. Let's put it that way. I, I, I have some family up there. I, I know the deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, the marriage, the marriage was always strong, you know, even at its worst, you know, because, you know, we've had a 40 year run. So, you know, we've had issues. Of course. Yeah. And, um. Yeah, I, he holds the line or I hold the line or we hold the line together. Uh, you know, we, we fight, we make up and we move on, you know. So let's, let's get into why I wanted you to come onto the show. 
even though, I mean, that's the, the lead up is fascinating and we could get into to that lead up and go so many directions, but there's a, there's, there's a very specific reason that, that you're on the show and, and it started what way back in 2014, correct? Yeah. And, um, so in September of 2014, he, he was promoted, correct? To Lieutenant. He was, we had gone to, you know, Moosehead Lake with his best friends and my best friends. The Carols and the Coochers, and the Renanes. We rented a beautiful lake house up on Moosehead Lake. And oh my God, we were just having a ridiculous time, having way too much fun. And we were going back because Jay was being promoted and Paul was being promoted. So Paul never wanted to leave the rescue. He was out 53 years old when he decided that he was going to stop making his way up the ladder. So he took the exam and got the, got the results. And, you know, he was disappointed. He said, oh shit, I passed. <laughs> you don't know how many times I've heard that before. Yeah. Just, you know, just live for the rescue. And, um, sure enough, we, we come back from vacation. We are in City Hall at this amazing ceremony right in Worcester City Hall. Down. Paul's, Paul's giving his white cap, get the beautiful pictures taken with the family. And our son was leaving shortly thereafter to go in the Marines to become a firefighter. So he's you know, in Massachusetts, they have that veterans presence. And that's what my son wanted to do. And, and we came home and life was, life was great. He was getting ready to get on to um, a rig, I guess, at a different firehouse. And he got a call that um, his PSA level was up and it had never been up. And it was only up by a hair. I mean, we're talking a hair. And he went in and had a biopsy and I'll never forget that morning that we went to the doctors because I was impatient. I never in a million years figured that he'd have cancer. He was just, you know, a bodybuilder and everything he did was something around health and, you know, he'd be on the, he's the guy in the, in the fire house that gets on the loudspeaker, he says, all right, everybody in the weight room now, we're going to lift like men. <laughs> and it's just who he was. And, um, and I don't, I don't want anyone to take that the wrong way because when, when he's speaking, he's speaking to, to the, the, the girl firefighters too. I always have to say that Paul and I share the same best friend and she's a firefighter. So yeah, I don't. At any event. So we went to the dock. Yeah, I was, I'm sorry. I did not mean to interrupt you. I, I, I'm sometimes I'm not, we don't do a good job of knowing when the natural breaks are there. Um, yeah. So what's the next step after, after that call? Well, then the, the call was the biopsy and of course we didn't think anything was going to be wrong. And um, we go to the doctor's office and I'm thinking, I got to get out of here because I have groceries I have to do. It's a Saturday or something like that. It was a day that I had off and I needed to run some errands. And um, sure enough, 
the doctor comes in and he's just talking very nonchalant. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good. This means he's not concerned. It's not cancer. Good. And all of a sudden he says, yeah, it's cancer. And they literally screamed and fell into the chair in the little office. And Tan, the sweat just broke out of him. And he had to tear off his shirt and he sunk into a chair. Oh, God. And then the doctor spoke for about 45 minutes. Neither one of us heard a word he said. He came home and it was just disbelief. You know, we had always been that family that had the big firefighter house parties, you know, for Christmas. We, we'd had 200 firefighters in and out of our house that night, you know, it'd be ridiculous parties in our house and the neighbors put up with it because we just were all firefighters in my family. <laughs> but we didn't have it that year and people couldn't figure out why. Well, and we couldn't tell anyone. Hell didn't know how to tell my children that he had kids, so he didn't know how to tell his brothers that he had kids. And I said, Paul, you have to tell your brothers. They have to know. They have to get checked, too. And I'll never forget the phone call he made. Because um, he said to his brothers, I have a touch of cancer. <laughs> Who has a touch a, of cancer? A touch of cancer. A, a little bit pregnant. Oh, exactly. And we did end up cutting our kids, you know, so afraid, so afraid. Our son went off to boot camp and he was so emotional, you know, because he didn't want to leave his dad. And his son was, you know, 23 years old when he reigned. He had to do it then. <clears throat> so in any event, has his surgery, and we go to St. Elizabeth's in Boston, not Brighton, I think it is. And Paul's <clears throat> driving on, I guess it's Route 9 in Massachusetts. In, uh, it's, I forget what they call it, the Mass Turnpike. And it's the worst snowstorm in a year. And the windshield wipers are uh, won't even work. So Paul's hanging out the, the Jeep driving, trying to, trying to wipe the windshield um, off of uh, the, the snow sleet and ice. And I'm thinking, oh, we're going to get killed while we're on the way to save his life. And um, sure enough, he's hanging out the, the Jeep window trying to operate the windshield wipers. It was horrible because there's nowhere that you can really pull over on the mass turnpike in Boston without getting killed. No, I can, I can, I can verify that. <laughs> so we go to see Elizabeth and yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. It's, you know, I'm, I get a very good feeling when I walk through the doors because there's beautiful statue of Christ. And that's very important to me. I feel a wave come over me that everything's going to be okay. His, his doctor is Dr. Imbolf Turk, who is an absolute ringer for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, speaks with the thick German accent and 
and he performed the surgery and the, rest of the surgery was successful. So the prostate was removed. But it left porn with what we, we, we didn't want to talk about this for a long time because it's humiliating. But it left him incontinent. So you look at him. He looks, you know, it's back into taking care of his body. <clears throat> He's 63, but he, he looks much younger than that. He's a big built guy. <clears throat> but it left him in coming to me. So you can't be a, a firefighter with incontinence. And so the realization <clears throat> set in. He would not be returning to the job. And I think that was that realization and watching Paul not get out of a reclining chair day after day was so difficult. And that's what led to me turning to research, to wanting to understand. But if someone's so healthy, you can't say, because it comes from a big Irish family. No, no one in his family has prostate cancer. None of them, none of his cousins and picking brothers. So they just kept getting this message that there's more to it, there's more to it. And I kept researching firefighter cancer in Boston. had just came up with this great video about firefighter cancer. I mean, started to, you know, look at all of these sites that were about firefighter cancer. I started looking at sites that led me to research. Not firefighter cancer, but the gear. And I came across sort of thing that showed that there was a um, firefighter in New Jersey back in, I want to say, 2006, whose gear failed. And by failed, I mean she was in a fire and this gear had degraded so much that it caused steam burns throughout his body and he succumbed to those injuries. And the thought of that was so horrifying to me. So I went down to a basement and I pulled his gear out of the cellar, the box that it had been stored away in. And I shined a flashlight through the gear. I pulled the lighter out from that, that outer shell. And I could see these, you know, coin-sized pieces of fabric missing it. I, I describe it as like, look at an oven mitt when you know it's filled with that material that's going to keep you from burning your, your hands and fingers when you use it. But that material was missing in, you know, quartering dot nickel-sized pieces. And I thought, holy shit. What is going on here? And um, 
I ran back upstairs and started to search the materials. Kevlar, Ulex, outer shell, inner shell, moisture barrier. You know, I, I guess I seem like a machine searching and thinking, how does it get through? And then I started reading NFPA documents and learning how to navigate the NFPA machine looking through all of the material online and I started thinking, why is the material breaking down? And then I found this 1999 safety alert. I hope I don't get his name wrong, but I want to say it was Al Whitehead who was the leader of the IAF in 1999 and sent out a, a safety alert, this moisture barrier. And this is when things went sideways because it read very strongly that the IAFF was going out to the manufacturers because they didn't want to recall this um, safety barrier that had degraded. I'm thinking, why the hell won't they do what the IAFF is telling them to do? And that's when I started looking into corporations and thinking, what's up with this? What is up with these, you know, corporations that the IAFF is not threatening to sue if they don't, you know, uh, recall that safety, that moisture barrier that's degrading. So at any event, I started to uh, reach out to buy funders and you know, fire companies and, and <clears throat> started researching Kevlar and Yolfix in firefighter cancers, emailing and messaging hundreds of people. I, you know, start messaging and one of the people that I emailed was Erin Brockovich. And out of the clear blue, one day she called. And she said, Diana, I've gotten your emails and, you know, I wanted you to know I've gotten a call from an New Hampshire fire chief who said that he has 13 firefighters with cancer. And I said, yeah, that doesn't surprise me because, you know, every firehouse is a cancer cluster. And we started talking about my findings. And she said, do you know if this PFOA or PFOS McGear. And I said, oh, I've never heard of that. So after the conversation, I hang up the phone and I call Pauline. I Google PFOA or PFOS, the firefighter turnout gear. And I find that in 2014, the European uh, Chemical Agency was already um, petitioning the stakeholders at being, you know, the DuPont and 3M and Lime Gear, et cetera, <clears throat> petitioning them to remove the PFOA from firefighter turnout gear. But what I found <laughs> actually was a, a PDF that said that Europe is beginning its transition to non-PFOA PPE. And that's when I really went balls to the walls with social media because 
at that time I had maybe a following of like 99 people. And I had 99 friends on Facebook. Actually. And I kept it that way because I thought, I don't, you know, I, I was, I had to look small as it, you know, um, I came overcame a lot childhood trauma. And one of the ways that protected myself was by being isolated. I worked very well in isolation. So if I got a hundred friends, that meant somebody had to go. So that was didn't know. And um, in the event, I began messaging. Anybody know about this? Was PFOA and PPE and in Dazaki, I have that here, and I just couldn't get any answer. I these started becoming, you know, dropping that shield around myself and became more and more prolific on social media. And started to email and research and email the companies, and the responses would say that, you know, they, it may be there as a byproduct of manufacturing. Mm. Notes. And I said, well, what's a trace amount? Because I don't understand that language. You know, I barely graduated high school. I finally was able to determine that if I really wanted to know the truth, I'd have to do it myself. Hey, guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount, and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So, I wrote the article and I sent it to John Miller, that editor of Station Pride, and I think he, he really just kind of put up with me um, for weeks and months and then said, you know, I'm going to look into this day and if what you're saying is true, then, you know, I've got an obligation. So, yeah, he, he took my article and he said, I can't publish it. It's, it's, it's you know, it's. It's too long, and you know you're making these crazy accusations. You've got no proof of anything. And then he said, "But I can't not publish it." So he published it, and he called it "Real Cancer in Your Gear," a great article. And in it, we saw it published and shared thousands of times. No one was commenting, but they were sharing it, <laughs> and it. It really caused a backlash. And um, we then started seeing who the players were. And, you know, I was so naive, I'll tell you, because I just kept wanting to find out that I was wrong. <clears throat> but never find out that I was wrong then. And I ended up purchasing a set of new Never Worn Triumph here. By this time, I had really made connections and started to develop a network of firefighters and scientists, and people were reaching out to me on social media. 
And I had a page called um, Yatrino Gear and PFOB that had five five thousand followers. It's no longer in existence. But um, at any event, we started publishing all of our findings there, and I was able to find Dr. Graham Peasley, the nuclear physicist at Notre Dame, who was just turned into a rock star. You know, serves the fire service because he breaks down the science in a relatable form for us. And um, with no money, we we reached out to the Last Call Foundation, honoring firefighter Michael Kennedy. And I reached out to Kathy Crosby Bell. Paul and I drove to Florian Hall, sat with Kathy. And his son Michael is a firefighter and is also a Marine. And organization was founded after Michael succumbed to the tragic incident in Boston Back Bay with his lieutenant Ed Walsh on March 26th, I believe, of 2014. The Back Bay Fire. Had a bad tragedy formed. Mass Kong Foundation. She's very well known and respected in throughout Massachusetts and the nation because of the work that she's done for firefighters. So she funded a study for Graham Peasley because um, Dr. Peasley always has worked pro bono, but these very Technical tents are done by commercial labs and that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So we needed a network of firefighters. We needed new gear, needed key commissioned gear. And I may never be able to tell you how we got the new gear. Hmm. I'll leave that up to one of my teammates someday to share that story. But we did. We formed an underground operation most unlikely group ever. And we pulled off the study that the fire service institutions never do. And there, it was helpful. And I was going to say, what, what were the findings? Cause I, I, I don't know what the acceptable level is. I, I don't even like that term acceptable level of the, of, of the chemicals, because there's so much we don't know about the chemicals, even to, to, to today. Mm-hmm. But what was the finding on those, on that set of gear that, that Grant Peasley so that was the pilot study and that initial study. Um, you can see all of these. I do have a website. It's called Your Turnout Gear and PFOA.com. And there's a great page there that's a chronology. And in that, you'll find all of, all of these studies in the Station Pride articles. But this pilot study, Dr. Peasley brought me back and he read off the findings as PFOA and um, PFNA and all these things. I have no idea what he was talking about. But I could see in this, in this email that he was very concerned. And he said, you're going to need to do a larger study. And that's when we had to pull off the underground operation and get the decommissioned gear and the new gear to Notre Dame and get the funding for the, for the larger 
peer-reviewed study, which is what we did. So the findings were staggering of the pilot study, but he needed a peer-reviewed study. He had never seen chemicals. He had never seen textiles with the amount of um, fluorinated material that your Chernobyl gear has. But the pilot study was the awakening of the um, bioservice. We now have a peer-reviewed study, and that was being combated by non-peer-reviewed studies. So once you get into these type of uh, studies, you'll find that there are stringent peer-reviewed studies that are done by respected science scientists and researchers. And then you get into what is called consulting studies. And those studies are paid for by an organization that would like you to find in their favor. And that is exactly what happened. The Lion Gear study was a paid consultant study by the group exponent. And what happened was their study refuted Dr. Peasley's study by saying that there were not significant findings in, in turnout gear. And it also said that if, you know, the, the short chain PFAS were there, but they were too big to pass through your skin. <clears throat> and I saw that being promulgated throughout the fire service. In, in those, those days, I, I'm no longer firing flaming arrows, but I took it very personally of what was being told to firefighters. And I was a wildcat on social media, aiming an arrow at anybody and everybody that differed with Dr. Peasley's study. And what does that, what does that do, I guess, to you would be the question. What, what, what was the backlash? Oh, God. There was backlash. In fact, because my aim was at Harold Shakebreaker, who was the president of the union at that time, I received a call that you know, the union would no longer be affiliated with me in, um, in Massachusetts. It was obvious when Paul and I would show up at the state house or hearing in firefighters that once, you know, welcomed us with open arms, wouldn't look at us. And, uh, one particular day was extremely bad. We went to give testimony. And the people that I had worked closely with on the strongest legislate on the strongest um, language for, for firefighters back in 2018 and 2019, the reception was very cold. I found myself sitting alone in a in a uh, bench, trying to give in my testimony. And it is at that moment that we knew that there had been an order to shun us. 
Both, we called it the shunning, and the shunning went on for a number of years. People, you know, Paul and I would enter a room and people would put their hands in their pockets and bow their head because they were advised not to speak to us or not to be affiliated with us. And what that did to me was it made me fight harder. Um, I fought voraciously and loudly and like a, like a, like a wildcat, like a, like a banshee. Uh, and that was drawing a lot of attention. And I think it's safe to say one of the parties that uh, caught the attention was President Ed Kelly, who's now your president. And uh, he became very interested in this issue. And I think it became one of his uh, major pieces for his campaign was that he was going to take on the industries and have trans, you know, had transparency of what has gone on in the IAFF previous to his reign. So, um, as he began his own investigation into the chemicals in your gear, we had now a team from, from coast to coast that were working on a new structure within the union. And that included our firefighters from Massachusetts uh, to Florida, to California, to Washington State, uh, throughout the nation, Alaska, um, the network was was becoming larger and larger. But the work that was being done um, by the firefighters had to follow the chain of command, uh, and I had no chain of command. That that's the beauty of it, right? It is, it is, um, because I was free to call out industry in the NFPA, which I did. And, you know, there was powers that be in the institutions. Uh, they carry a lot of weight. And the NFPA became my main target because what I saw in there was just so corrupt and so opportunistic. Um, and I'm, I'm going to tell you that one day I got a call from my dear, dear friend who's gone now, Bobby Halton. And he said, kid, you be careful. You'll be careful, kid. Those of you that might not know the name, Bobby Halton is entering editor-in-chief of fire engineering. And I was poking barbs at Bobby Halton wildly, wildly on social media, yelling at, yelling at him, I guess, <laughs> on social media, and saying, why aren't you talking about this, Bobby Alton? And then he replied, Diane Carter, I am not hard to find. And he wrote his phone number. I picked up the phone that instant and uh, called him. We spoke for two hours. And, you know, he promised me he'd speak to Graham Peasley. And he did. And he learned all he needed to know. And then Bobby gave us such a platform 
on fire engineering with P.J. Norwood and Frank Ricci. And they'd have our teammates on, you know, the hump day hangout constantly. And, you know, Bobby invited Graham Peasley at um, FDIC. And I'll never forget that because Bobby had an impossible position. You know, he had to introduce this situation to the fire service and the members that, that, that I was accusing of, of being corrupt and disingenuous were his paying, you know, his bread and butter. But he did do it in a way that allowed space for us. And then that opened up many conversations. And you saw our allies that were working um, the Nantucket Fire Department, Fall River Fire Department. Uh, and then, of course, you'd see Graham Peasley and Robert Allah, who took this issue on with us. You'd see all of our allies speaking on the podcast. You know, the articles would then come out and then shared on social media. And that's where I did my best work was social media. So there are, there are many people that are smiling right now because they were one of the hundreds of people I bombarded daily with these, with these you know, statements and dialogues and articles. And that uh, was just one of the ways you, you manage a campaign. But one thing that Bobby did say to me, he said, kid, listen, uh, there's a meeting in in Washington, D.C., and I was asked to attend it. And it's um, Lion Gears, John Granby, was at the, the IEFF headquarters under Shakeberger to discuss how to mess with Diane Carter. So instead of making any changes, they wanted to discredit you and yeah. sweep it under the rug. Right, right. Well, um, I had seen that, and you know, that was one of the hardships about being the the outsider is that I could I could call out Shakeberger, and I wrote blog after blog about Shakeberger and what he was doing, and you know, then I began seeing the other blogs about Shakeberger and other incidences, um, you know, the the blogs that Eric Lamar wrote and. Then the article that came out about the um, the pension, uh, you know, the, the 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 double dipping of the pension for twenty years. But it was easy for me to do my own thing because uh, I had no one telling me what I could and couldn't do. But as firefighters, you cannot do that. So I was on a lot of podcasts and writing a lot of articles on Medium and, um, you know, my, my truths were, in my opinion, I was holding the line for the truth of this issue, but it was wearing away at me because of the backlash of the attacks and of having to spin wheels. I was in full throttle for five years. I never geared down. I'm full throttle because it was a 24-7 job. Keep the truth alive. And I was combating 
organizations that had endless money and I had no money. And the only way that I could keep the truth was by building a network of firefighters that shared their stories and by ridiculous amounts of emails. So many emails that I think last count was 25,000 emails. I've stopped counting. But um, we grew grew network with senators and congressionals. And uh, you saw Ed Kelly from day one when he took the reins. <laughs> this is job one for Ed, for Ed Kelly. You know, he came out swinging. I mean, I was so impressed. I just couldn't believe, you know, that we now have the exact opposite of Harold Shakebreaker. But it did take its toll. Um, after a particularly horrific incident, uh, I wore down. I got so beat down that uh, I considered taking my life. And I told, I told my dear friend and ally, Jeff Kanabi, He's a PPE specialist, the Alameda County, California. I didn't tell my husband, but I told Jeff that he would be the administrator, that I had made him administrator of the social media pages. He didn't leave it to talk. So how do you start to recover from that? I didn't. I didn't recover. That went on. He knew, so, you know, he was continuing to check on me. But it was a heavy burden to put on him, too. It wasn't fair. But nonetheless, the recovery came when the new administration got in and the science team was set up and I could see things shifting and changing and it felt great it felt great to see such a big change we had Ed Kelly and his team, and he's become an activist <laughs> and an environmentalist, and he's he's just taken on the industry and taken on, you know, taken on the NFPA because now he's got a group of lawyers, a PFAS law firms, three legal teams. And they're going to combat this issue on Capitol Hill. They're combating, they're, they're like a lobbying group, you know, for the issue, many issues, I guess. They're taking on the NFPA. I think it was just a month ago that papers were served to the NFPA. The IAF is suing the NFPA on this issue because the NFPA is really 
although they're going to tell you that they are a uh, neutral organization, that is a crock of shit. That is such a crock of shit. You, you, you can't tell me that these, um, you know, you've got a corporation like Lion Gear, who's head of corporate responsibility, and vice president, John Granby, wants to mess with a firefighter's wife. Um, he, he sits on, or sat, I don't even know what he does now, but, you know, these, these are the voting members of the NFPA, the people that my husband and others are suing for their cancers. So much has come out of this action. I, it's, it, it, there's so many um, uh, leaves of it or others of this subject. I really don't know where one begins and one ends. But I can tell you that um, right now I'm a different woman. Um, the, the pain taught me a lot about myself. It's okay to be out there. Um, I'm not out there to please everybody. I've had a lot of disappointments along the way. You know, I, I've seen, um, I've seen a lot of people put themselves in this issue that weren't righteous, that were opportunistic. I've had many disappointments, but I've always held the line for, in my opinion, what the truth is. So I've become very tough. And I didn't like being tough. I liked being silly. I liked knitting. But I, I, that girl is dead now. You know, I'm a tricky person. I am knitting again, though. <laughs> but I'm not gentle the way I used to be. And yeah, it takes, but I ain't relieved. <laughs> I ain't relieved. In Las Vegas, um, January 30th, the documentary burned, was shown, and Paul and I were flown out by the IAFF. And we were honored in the most fantastic way. I just couldn't be prouder of the IAFF and what they're doing right now. You said that you're a changed person mm. and I think I can, I can understand that because you take up a mantle mm. and you, uh, you get beaten down for so long. You have to, you have to change in some manner. And, um, uh, it's good to hear that you, you're, you, you, you're back to knitting and, and how do you, I guess, how do you. How do you find yourself again? Well, one of the things that you know, Paul and I have always enjoyed is a natural world. So we, when we downsized after Paul cancer, we bought a house in Ridge, New Hampshire. That's on Powell lines. <laughs> and we love walking the Powell lines. We love the deer in the backyard. We love the birds in the backyard, you know, the geese in the pond. And we're very 
blessed family. To find myself again in writing, I, you know, I'm writing the memoir about all of this. <laughs> and I love writing. So that's good. It is hard because, you know, sometimes I revisit um, my diaries from these days and oh, it really fucks me up good for a while. Yeah. But it is good to write it out. And the memoir is now taking shape because I'm writing I mean a view of a seasoned activist and I look back at oh how naive I was naive I was yeah in what sense I trusted everyone I trusted everyone and everything and you know for the first two years I kept thinking that everybody saw this issue like I did you know and Finally, I, I realized that, 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 you know, the NFPA was just a, a, such a cog of a machine. Uh, I, I couldn't break through. Um, and I realized that Harold Schaefer had an agenda that did not align with the facts. And, you know, I had to combat that. They uh, Hourly, hourly, you know, it was, became like a, a hawk, <laughs> you know, what's this one saying? What's that one saying? And then I'd have to combat that online and then the, the backlash would come up on, you know, from firefighters that, that believed in their leader, but, but were really giving misinformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that, it's that blind allegiance. It is. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I get messages daily. You know, Diane, you, you, you made us open our eyes and we didn't want to see it. And, um, you know, I understand that. I didn't want to see it, for Christ's sakes. You know, for two years, I believed it too. I'm like, okay, we'll just wait. And at one point in time, I just said, oh, fuck. And I just started kicking the arrows and just lighting them up and flaming them through the air and, yeah, making them stick. And that's what you had to become. You had, I had to become bombastic and ugly and, yeah, I had to become that, that C word that I say regularly. <laughs> well, you had to become a fighter. That's for goddamn sure. I had to become a fighter. And I didn't like that. No, you, you had to put yourself in a very public eye. I did. Yeah, I didn't like I didn't like my kids seeing that, you know, I was yelling at everybody in the fire service. And, you know, I sounded I sounded unhinged. And I was unhinged. I was unhinged. I was unhinged. You know. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to remind everybody to go watch the movie or listen to my episode with Elijah, the filmmaker of burned because Diane and I talked about it at the beginning before we came on air that we're not really going to get into the science here because I didn't want to get lost in the science. Um, but where are you now? What, what, like what's today like for you? Today's good. <laughs> Today's good. I'm writing. I have a, um, 
my computer looks out over the backyard and I call up those emails from 2016, 2017, 2018, and I revisit those days and I'm writing the, the memoir, uh, looking back at all the people that have come through our story. And, uh, it's good. It feels really good. Um, I'll go. <laughs> it's funny you ask, what's today look like for you? I, I was going to tell you, I, I go up and I pick up the trash. This <laughs> drink <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's Earth Day. And uh, picked up eight bags of trash yesterday. So, you know, my, my life is, is, is wonderful. Um, you know, I see my grandchildren, our grandchildren so often. They're just two little bear cubs and yeah life is life is life is good um and how is paul today i i want to say to you that he's 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 fine but you'll hear in my voice that he's not fine because you know he's never i'm sorry adjusted to not being on the job he's I love isolation. I thrive in isolation. He does not. He does not. You know, when you go, when you have prostate pills, one of the things that has to happen when they remove that is prostate, depending on how the surgery goes, the rechecks for those cancer in your blood still. So he went recently for another recheck and we wait for the results for that. And you hold your breath. But, you know, like I said on the stage in Las Vegas, I feel guilty saying that because, you know, there are so many widows that are raising families without their husbands. I have my husband, he's a grandfather, he's watching his son's career. And so many of my friends, um, you know, I call them my friends because we be, we do become friends. They've lost their husband. They've lost their brothers. When we went to um, the EPA protest, Susan Wind, another activist, who, like me, was really, really knocked out by her community and others. She put together a protest, the EPA, and Ed Kelly and Jason Burns, my ride-or-die guy, Jason Burns, and Jeff Kanabi. I got to say that because they're both my brothers. Um, they both spoke so well at this EPA protest. Um, and, you know, we've had to, we've had to organize these events, but at this event, the protest you saw in front of the turnout gear, pictures of a half dozen firefighters and their, their widows sent me those pictures and that brought them, um, one of, one was a sister, Dana Sargent, sent her Chicago firefighter grant his picture there, and you saw Ed Kelly and Jason Burns give their speeches. And 
these men and women are gone. And, you know, the amount of PFOA it takes to grow a tumor in a lab animal is an undetectable amount. Undetectable. Just don't know how to make sense of any of this. So your best advice to firefighters today, what would that be? Don't wear the gear until that moment that you have to. You know, it's, I hate to be the one to say, you shouldn't be doing the races in the gear. You shouldn't. I'm going to tell you, when you hear those words, it's cancer. It's going to knock the fuck out of you. When you hear those words, oh, it's devastating. And most of you are going to hear those words. And you're going to wonder, was it the gear? The stair climbs in the gear? Was, you know, was I touching the gear and then ate a sandwich? And, you know, I got that shit on my hands and Peasley's researchers can't even handle my gear without wearing gloves. Until you can get PFAS free gear, this is a problem, and it's real. It's real, but it's it's the one thing that you can control. You know, you should be washing down your stations, getting that dust out of there. Reach out to Jess Kanabi. I'll tell you how to do it. But the good thing is there's so much material out there now. There's so many studies and, you know, don't take my word for it. Just, um, you'll find it yourself. The scientists, the science community is behind this. Strongly behind this. You, know, the, you mentioned PFAS-free gear. Whoa. Where do we stand with that? Where is there progress being made on something like that? There is, there is an outer shell that's available by safety component. Um, you'll see that on my website. I am not endorsed by anybody, so it, there's no kickback that's going on here. And, um, but I know that because they, they worked with Graham Peasley and there are others that wouldn't work with Graham Peasley. They didn't want to be associated with that guy. But um, safety component did work with Graham Peasley. So I think that's a very positive step. Problem is your moisture barrier. The moisture barrier is a sheet, Teflon. But you're literally wrapped in Teflon from your neck to your ankles while you're sweating. And all of you know about heat and skin absorption. Manufacturers will tell you that the only thing that is not absorbed through your body is PFAS. But those other carcinogens, they are not this stuff, though. Well, we know that's false. Problem is, is that the NFPA is holding the line on, and they're going to say that they're not holding the line. Yes, they are. They're holding the line that um, the, the, the safety standard to remove that uh, felicious xenon light test that goes back to that 1999 
safety alert. For the bright tech moisture barrier, they're saying that um, that the TIA that Ed Kelly wrote um, was voted down by firefighters. I'm going to tell you something. Those firefighters that voted it down are sponsored by the companies that my husband and others are suing for their cancers. So, yeah. So that that's still prevalent today, correct? That that kind oh. of um, incestual relationship. Oh hell yes! Oh hell yes! In fact, I'm going to tell you something else too. That I had written a statement that had drawn a lot of controversy. You can read it on my medium page, and that's the NFPA members must hold um, and must declare their conflicts of interest. So this went before um, a committee discussion. I think that was in early March. And I wasn't there on the task group, although I am a member. I wasn't there that day. But what happened was my comment was snickered at. You know, there's that nosy housewife again button herself in here. And thankfully... We had a great ally that day, Neil McMillan, who is the director of science for the IAFF. He held the line and said, how dare you laugh at this woman? I just watched 2,300 firefighters give her a standing ovation. And the premiere burned. But yeah, that still goes on today. Hmm. It's kind of a, I think I'm going to leave it there with the story. Mm-hmm. And it, I, um, I think that's a pretty good ending. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get into those last two questions. If you still have time to do them real quick. I do. Okay. So I don't know how much you've listened to the show. Uh, I like to tell people once in a while, I like to tell the audience once in a while, why I do this segment of the, uh, everyday carry. I am, um, I was trying to come up with a title for this podcast and, and somehow, I think that's what was one of the most difficult parts of starting the show. And a coworker of mine brought to attention a, a book that I had read way back when, and, and he had read recently and he said, I think it makes sense. And it's called the things they, they carried. And it's a, it's a book about Vietnam. It's a novel about Vietnam and, and it references the items that these, this platoon would carry into battle, but then it would also talk about the feelings, emotions, and scars and everything they brought out of battle. And I thought that that was very appropriate because obviously as first responders at firefighters, cops, whatever, we bring something into a battle, so to speak, whether it be an EMS call or a fire, but we're always carrying something out as well. And so to that end, I like to ask people, each guest, what's something that they, they have as an everyday carry, something you feel naked if you leave the house without? I have a beautiful rosary bracelet and I... Don't attend church, but uh, I I do love my faith. I love my spiritual side, and um, I depend on it. And then I also like to give the audience a book or two, and I, so I ask for suggestions of a book you might have read recently, or something that's impacted you throughout the 
throughout your life and something that brings value to the audience. So I know you mentioned that you're, you're an avid reader. And so I think this question is perfect for you. Oh, I, I love anything true life. And, um, I love the language of letting go that has helped me so much. There's a paragraph in there that was very prominent in my life and, um, it's crossing the bridge. I think that it, the phrase goes something to the effect of, I've crossed the bridge and even though you're on the other side, it doesn't mean that I'm not there for you. It means that I'm here for you when you come over to. I like that. It can be interpreted a few ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a, I like that one. That's, I'll, I will uh, add the book in the show notes and. Um, I will add your website and as much information as possible. But I think through your website, people can kind of go off on tangents anyway, correct? Yeah, well, I've got... Um, You've got plenty of information is what I'm saying. Aaron's is a lot of information there, yeah. And if you want to go ahead and give that, and listeners, they don't always read the notes. So if you want to throw it out there. My website is your turnout gear and PSOA. Dot com. And where can people find you other than your website? Are you on social media? Do you want any new friends on social media? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely public now. Okay. So go ahead and give those out and then we'll wrap up and I'll let you get out of here and enjoy the rest of your day. On Twitter, I'm Di, D-I underscore Clotter, C-O-T-T-E-R. And on Facebook, I'm Diane Carter, and you'll probably see um, the background picture is uh, a post of burned. Okay, perfect. And uh, I just tagged you on Instagram as well, so some of my followers might find you there. Yes, cool. Yeah, I'm on Insta. I forget about that. I really don't know how Instagram works. (laughs) (laughs) I don't either. I'm learning as I go, so. Well, I thank you very much. This has been a long time coming and uh, it did not disappoint. I, I hope that uh, I hope I can do the story some justice when I release it. And I have no doubt that you will. I absolutely no doubt you will. Thank you for letting me tell this story. No, that my, the thanks is, is all mine to give because you, you shared and, and it was emotional and I appreciate it. Thank you. You be safe. Thank you, you too. Take care for the rest of the day. I'll talk to you later. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.